Hello friends, welcome to today's episode. So today is going to be one of those episodes where I told you that you might be hearing a little bit of different voices going forward on the podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to my friend Glenn Allen. He's the go-to CMO for digital course launches and he's a multi-instrumental musician and he turned into a marketing and business consultant and Glenn coaches online entrepreneurs to scale from five to six figure business and beyond. Glenn is the host of the Glenn Allen Show on YouTube. He is a dad. He's funny. And ladies, I have to say, the thing that sold Glenn and I's friendship was that he likes the Gilmore Girls. So without further ado, meet my friend, Glenn Allen. Hi there, I'm Jenna Kutcher. I'm the host of the Gold Digger Podcast, and I'm so excited that you're hearing me right now because that means that I get to introduce you to my friend, Michelle Hagen. Michelle is a mama on a mission dedicated to inspire other women to chase their dreams and their passions no matter what season of life they're in. And I've gotten the privilege to mentor and coach Michelle. She was one of my top 10 students in my community of over a thousand women, and she helped lead and inspire other mamas just like you. And now you, my friend, you get a front row seat. So sit back, relax, and get ready to be inspired. Welcome to the Living Your Calling podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Hagen, and my mission is to help you step into whatever you're truly called to do. I'm a Midwest wife and mom, and I built my business and dreams between the moments of motherhood. I believe that you can create your dreams around whatever season of life you're in. I'm obsessed with creating connections, out-of-the-box ideas, and cheering people on in whatever goal they're chasing. This is a place where you can come to feel like you're joining your best friends for coffee, for real talk of what's happening in life and business. Whether you're working on personal development or business, friend, I got you. Each week, you will find an episode that educates, inspires, and helps you take action to step into your calling and live your best life. You're listening to the Living Your Calling podcast, inspiring you to be and create exactly what you were made for. Are you ready? Here we go. Hi, Glenn. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. I am excited to dive into courses, which have been like the boom of this last year. But first, tell us what's new in your world. What is the new and up and coming things that 2021 or the pandemic brought to you this year? Well, first of all, you know, of course, homeschooling has been a big thing, but it's been taken off my plate. I'm I am divorced and fortunately my ex has been gracious enough to take it over. So that's freed me up big time. So I'm I'm super excited about that. Um beyond that, I just feel like uh all I ever do is talk to people through a screen all the time. So I'm getting a little bit bur- burned out about that. I'm just ready to I'm so ready to just like go to a coffee shop and hang out with people. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you. Yes, I feel the same way. And it's like even, I mean, podcasting was always virtual, but I guess I started this in the pandemic. But it's like this weird thing of being like, you and I are friends. Like we have talked to each other virtually so many times, but never have like actually been in the same room to breathe the same air. Like it is like, it's like, I just want to hug people and be like, oh my gosh, I finally get to see your face. Um, 
for sure. I feel the exact same way. And I'm so glad homeschooling got taken off your plate. I know you and I at the beginning of the school year had been chatting about like, what are we going to do? And how do we find the right homeschool? And how do you balance it all? Um, I would love for you to kind of dive in because I know you have your kids part time, but what does it look like for you being a dad? Because I feel like no one ever asked the question of like, you're a dad, how do you do it all? But you're a single parent. So what does it look like for you on a normal day when you're working and you have the kids? So they go to their mothers for a week and then they come to me for a week and they have, you know, homeschool homework to work on. And during that time, it's generally pretty quiet other than I hear a lot of like, my daughter, who's a mini mom, she's 10, yelling at her two younger brothers, June, you know, you're supposed <laughs> to be waiting, you know, so she keeps them on task. But sometimes I have to like, it. Ha I'll hear that while I'm like on a podcast or on a call with somebody and people are pretty gracious about it, fortunately. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, luckily they love to play outside. It's been crazy snowy and there's a park directly across the street from my house where they're sledding mm -hmm. all the time. So that keeps them busy. But it is, a, it is a lot of just kind of uh, get on a call, try to just hope that they're not going to come bother me. But all the time, like, they'll just like, come over and I, like out of my corner of my eye, I'll be talking like this and I'll try to keep my thoughts together and I'll lose my frame, like what I'm saying. Because in the corner of my eye, there's my son with like a, a sign that says like, can we go to Allie and Jordan's house? <laughs> and so it <laughs> me crazy. But I mean, it's at the same time, I have to remember like I, I – I wouldn't have this opportunity to, you know, spend time with them if I was still working in an office. So mm -hmm. it's, it's yeah. a blessing nonetheless. Yeah. And I think the pandemic has kind of opened this door for working parents again to like normalize it. Like before it was, you have to be at work and your kids cannot interrupt ever. And I love how it has now normalized the working parent again and kind of shed the light of how much a parent is doing while they're, you know, they're still a parent and they're working, you know, like we only can fill so many buckets in so many ways. And I agree. It's the exact same way for me. Even today is a like ha snow day for one late start for the other. And I told my husband, I was like, it's okay. It's Glenn. If Thatcher comes up and, and, and interrupts, he gets it. So it's okay. And we'll just edit it out. But that Absolutely. is like the world that we are living in. And but it's also like a great thing that I hope that some of that stays when we go back, like having the grace of a parent who has their kids at home with them to still know that they're working, but maybe still have a toddler on the couch watching TV while they're trying to get some work done. Oh, I totally agree. It's funny because I worked, you know, I, I landed like an absolute dream job and we had, we had work from home, but it was like, you could, you know, you couldn't really abuse it. You can only use it so mm -hmm. often. And I always kind of felt guilty if my kids were home and I was dealing with them and tending to that, but they're pretty gracious about it because the founder, you know, she started that business with her twins and older daughter. So it was like, she had also three kids around my, you know, around my, my age doing the same kind of thing. So she's always been cool about it, but there was a point where finally they just decided there's just not enough activity in the office. It's kind of boring when everybody's working from home. And so they decided for the morale of the office, they're going to end work from home. And mm. that was the week before quarantine went into effect. Oh no. It was like, never mind. Don't come into the office at all. Oh man. That's kind of it's so interesting. And even for me, quarantine went, I was out of town traveling and I like self-quarantined because 
we knew that we should, but it like hadn't really been in lockdown. And then we went into quarantine and my husband came home and um, yeah, it all has changed. Which a lot of things have changed in this year, which speaking of, we've seen, I mean, courses were popular, but I feel like we have seen this massive boom in courses and people using their knowledge and sharing their knowledge. And it's amazing um, what people are creating and you are an expert on courses. So I thought like, let's talk about this and how do we know when we're ready to create courses and when people, you know, have now been home and a lot of people have created side hustles when do we even know like okay it's time to create a course well there's so many people who i mean they're just either they're just tired of their job and they want to start an online business or they're realizing that their situation is insecure because they've been furloughed or you know they can't do the in-person thing and so they have to make a switch um, so there's, yeah, there's this huge influx of people who are, are saying like, I got to make a course. And I think the challenging thing there is so many people don't even know how to, I guess, number one, market a course. And then there's like a million launch strategies, even though there's like predominantly, you know, one or two really popular ones, they're not really one size fits all. And then the other thing is some people just don't have experience coaching, training, or teaching people. So I always say like, if you've never actually had experience either doing a workshop of this material you're breaking, want to make a course out of, or you haven't been paid to teach it in some kind of way, or you're not consulting and coaching on it, do that first because otherwise you're going to put a ton of time into something that you're not sure people actually want. And I see this happen all the time. They come to me and like, you know, I've got this course. Can you help me? It's not selling. And I look at it and I'll say, are you sure people actually want this? Mm. Um, it's not just even just validating, which is one thing, you know, a lot of people are taught to do, you know, get on, a, get on a bunch of calls with a bunch of people and say, Hey, would this be helpful to you? Cause I see people do that too. And the people on the other line will be like, yeah, that sounds helpful but that's not validating it. Mm -hmm. um, actually teaching people how to do something and then learning the fact that they don't think the way you do, you know, like I'm an expert in a bunch of different things in the music world. And I used to be a music teacher. It's how I got into this whole thing. And what I was finding is the way I think and the way I approach music and my mindset around it was very different than other people. They would say like, what is the hardest instrument you play? You know, cause I play 11 instruments. So They'd be like, you know, is guitar harder than saxophone or is drums harder because you have to use all your limbs? And I said, that's, that's none of that because music is not hard or easy. It is only familiar or unfamiliar in the same way, you know, like speaking English is not hard or easy to us. It's just familiar to us. And if we want to learn another language, it's challenging. But to that native speaker, it's not because they're familiar with it. So it's just all familiarity, right? Just change your mind around that. And so, you know, I started learning those kinds of things about my students that they had these kind of like assumptions, like, um, and some of them were flat out wrong. Like, you know, once you get to a certain age, you're never going to learn as fast. Well, we've, we've disproved that with, mm -hmm. with research. Uh, little kids have an advantage of learning music and all these different things. It's like, no, they don't. They just approach learning a little bit differently. So when you have those kinds of insights, you're able to bake those into the way you teach and come up with your own proprietary processes. Because I guarantee you're going to repeat yourself over and over the more you do it in certain areas. And you're going you're to notice there's kind of a trend in what people struggle with that maybe you didn't because you have the expertise. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So you're ready, I think, when you you have a process, maybe even your own proprietary process, you know, some systematic things that you know, and you know where people are going to struggle along the way, and you kind of, you can sort of preemptively address that. Um, you know, you don't have to know how to market it all. It's just, it makes it so much easier. Um, and you don't have to know everything, but you at least should have some experience teaching other people first. Mm, I loved that piece that you said about the learning music and how it's just familiar or unfamiliar because it is funny because I'm dyslexic. So I tried to learn piano by like the teacher looking at the notes. And as an adult, I'm like, well, of course I couldn't figure it out because that's not how my brain works. But if someone taught me the chords now as an adult, I can play the chords to like the song, but I can't, you know, I don't know the, the in-between keys, but it literally was of just how does my process and my brain work? Which makes me think, do you think as you're creating a course, because we all have the different processes of how our brain works and what works better, which is amazing because it gives us all different perspectives. When you are targeting your course, do you think you should be targeting it to like the people who learn like you? No, because you're gonna really limit you know, your potential for sales. I think you have to kind of factor in that lots of people learn in different ways. For some, it's it's auditory. For some, it's visual. And then you, you just kind of cater to those needs in different ways within a course. Mm-hmm. Um, also, people are going to be at different levels. So sometimes you have to figure out, okay, what is the scope of this? I see a lot of people are like, I'm going to create a course that's like soup to nuts, all this stuff. And it's 12 modules and it's it's like, well, you're, you're not going to have a lot of completion of that mm-hmm. course. And so the success rate of people will be limited. Therefore, reselling it will be really hard because you need success stories to hook more people when you relaunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, so let's say we've decided, okay, I actually have an idea and I've worked one-on-one with some people and I've con- the concept has worked and we've, we've worked through it because I loved how you also touched on those discovery calls don't always work because there have been people that I've worked with where they're like, well, I did the discovery calls and, and just by knowing I'm like, that's not going to work. I can just tell you it's not going to work. But we've, we've figured out, we've worked one-on-one and created the process And I know you and I have talked about this before in the strategy around it. And as being a sales strategist, I know there are so many different strategies around how we sell it and so many different funnels, which I know you're really good at. And we see a lot of the webinar or we see it like creating a um, challenge into your course. How do we know which strategy to pick for our audience? I think, you know, some people will tell you, just pick a system and it's it's not the magic of the system. It's the magic of picking a system and sticking with something that's going to give you success. But I don't always believe that's true. Um, a lot of the work I get is from people who used to be in Amy Porterfield's Digital Course Academy. It's a great course, but largely overwhelming for a lot of people that come to me because there's so many new things they have to take on besides like getting over the nerves to get on camera or getting over the nerves to, you know, make validation calls or learning how to list build or, you know, the tech of um, sequences, they also, you know, have to do something like a webinar. And webinars are like one of the most 
commonly known launch mechanisms, but they're so prevalent that I think a lot of people don't feel aligned with it, or it takes a lot of, there's, there's a certain amount of like, you have to do it a bunch of times. Like I did a webinar and it was like my first like real sales webinar. And even though I've coached people through it a ton of times and I've designed them, my first time doing it was so bad. And going back to this music analogy, it was like, you know, when you're, you're a musician and you're learning how to play music, oftentimes you learn scales and everything's do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, or you learn your blues scales and it's like, ba, 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 da, 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 da. Like, it's not music. It's just, it's just the, the formula. Mm-hmm. But once you've internalized it and done it, repeated a bunch of times, you can learn how to like, you put phrases into it and weave it in and out of things and improvise and then becomes like music. And the webinar, that takes quite a few passes before it becomes like music and becomes natural. It's going to be like very robotic and formulaic and it feels a little salesy and unnatural. And so some people, they're just not even, I don't know. Some people, they're great on video. Some people are terrible on video. You can always get better at things, but I say go with your gifts. So if you're like, I feel better in a scripted or pre-recorded video, there's a launch mechanism for that. You know, it's like the Jeff Walker style kind of thing. Uh, otherwise known as OVO for people who know Brendan Burchard's material. Uh, for some people, they're great at like coaching in a community. So great. Do a boot camp or a five-day challenge. Um, I, I often dissuade a lot of people from webinars unless they've got that webinar personality. I've got a few past clients who it's like, like my friend Amanda Horvath, she's like, you know, she's, she's a big YouTuber. She's been doing it for a while and She's got like over 30,000 followers. She's great on camera. She's got that energy. She's one of the only people I've worked with where it's just like, you have to just keep doing webinars. You're amazing at it. She she has that. But a lot of people, it's like, you should probably re-record or you should probably just record this and drip it out over a few days and like do that whole thing. So you have to go with your strengths. Knowing that, yes, you can get better at certain things. There's just some things where it's just like, it's just not a one size fits all. You shouldn't force it if it isn't working for you. So I don't think there is like a best strategy. However, my favorite is still the Jeff Walker style approach. Record three short videos, the sideways sales letter thing. I mean, I've, I've probably had the most client success when they do that. Mm. I love the piece where you had said like, go with your strengths, because that is one of the pieces that as a sales strategist, I teach as well. Like, if you're not good at reels, don't do the reels yet. Like, work on what we're good at. And then as you continue to build, to add on the other pieces, if that's really your true desire, like you really want to be the whole Amy Porterfield and have the entire webinar thing, start with what you've got and then add it on. And I love how you touched on that piece, because I think that's the important thing. If people weren't listening and you're passive listening, go with your strengths. If that's the one piece that they took out of that, that I love that you touched on because when we go with our strengths, that's when we'll see success for sure. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to feel more natural, more passionate about it. 
Have you heard that there's a new clubhouse in town? And I'm not talking about Mickey's. If you haven't heard of Clubhouse, girl, I got you. You need to get your voice on Clubhouse and be heard because it's about to get hot up in here. And sister, let me give you the lowdown. Clubhouse is a mix of Instagram fun and the interaction of Zoom only using your voice. The best part is there's no makeup or hairspray needed, just your voice and your passion. I became an early Clubhouse adapter and have cracked the code of strategy when using Clubhouse. As a small entrepreneur, I've connected with big name companies and entrepreneurs because of Clubhouse and my Clubhouse strategy. I created the Clubhouse Bio Builder for you so that you can strategically write your bio and gain qualified followers. Head to the link in the show notes to get your bio builder today. So going as that piece of talking about our strengths and going with it, a lot of times people don't, or they create a course and then they fail, or there's just things that we all make mistakes. What are the biggest mistakes that you're seeing course creators make right now? There's a few of them. You know, one of them is you mentioned people create a course and it fails. I think sometimes it's it's thinking that you know because you made a course and it fails courses don't work or you're a failure i mean it doesn't it's you know failures are what you make them mean and sometimes mm -hmm. they mean you, you need to go back to drawing board and find out what people want like uh, bringing back amanda horvath as for example like um our first launch was like a nice five-figure launch and then she more than doubled it and now she's like you know doing way beyond that with relaunches and stuff but that wasn't the case with her first launch before we met she created a video course teaching people, I, I don't know, it was like how to like outsource a bunch of your video. And basically she took her DIY work and she put it into a course and she thought, this is what I would want. This is what my DIY people want. But a DIY client that she has has a very different mindset about how they want to do things versus a person who wants to do it and learn how to do it. And she, mm -hmm. so she basically assumed she knew what people wanted. And that course sold to nobody. And so she scrapped it. And instead of deciding, okay, I'm a failure, I don't know what I'm doing, she asked everybody, what do you actually want? What are you struggling with? You know, the people who would actually want to do this kind of thing themselves. Mm -hmm. So the, the one of the absolute biggest, you know, mistakes is, of course, you know, assuming you know what people want, assuming you, you have, because you're an expert, people will also learn your way. I've taken courses where, and I've, I've spent like tens of thousands of dollars on courses um, over the last 10 years easily and in, in in a wide range of things not just marketing but like music like making food all kinds of stuff um and when when people like lay out things in a way that like it's the way they do them but they don't go back to the beginning and say okay here are the things that you like like the real fundamental things you might not know about this thing you lose a lot of people i took a course um from a a Facebook ads strategist, a good friend of mine who um, she used to work at Facebook. And so she's a total expert, but she kept losing us in like the simplest dumb little things. Like we forgot where do we, like when our ads stop running, what's happening with like this billing error we get? Well, she didn't cover like this, this very basic thing in the beginning of like, here's where you go for billing and your credit card and setting your budgets so that like all the stuff she was teaching us wouldn't keep stopping on us when we're running ads. And so like those little fundamental things often, you know, that's again, going back to why you really want to run it through with beginners and see what they're struggling with all the time. And you're going to find it's a lot of the same common things. 
Um, and then the other thing is creating this wonderful, perfect product, but not having, uh, you know, an audience is, is like one of the other things, like it's 50% of the work to have a, a course, mm-hmm. but that other 50 is, you know, you gotta either have your own engaged list or learn how to borrow somebody else's. So what does that look like? Because as you're talking about the own engaged list, a lot of times, like we all have people that follow us on social media. How do we know if they're engaged and they're ready for us to create a course? Or I, you know, I think about people, we talk about the email list and how important our email list is. This is kind of a loaded question, but we talk, you know, we have the email list, like how many people should be on our email list before we launch a course? What does that look like to know that you have an audience that's ready for you to create a course? Oh, that is a loaded question. I mean, first of all, social media is like, it's, it's great when you have a ton of followers, but um, that's, it's kind of farmed land, as everybody says, you know, you don't own your social media. There's always a danger that an algorithm change will change things or they'll remove a feature that you've been dependent on. It happens all the time. I mean, I've, I've been seeing it all the way back to like, you know, my music marketing days when we all lost our MySpace pages, which is how we used mm-hmm. to like really market our bands and things like that. And then, you know, Periscope came and went. I mean, I think it still exists, but it's not the hot, you know, item it used to be. And what happens a lot of times is, you know, social media, a, a new one comes out, it's very generous with, generous with its algorithm. And somebody, uh, um, you know, people start figuring out, oh, this is how you use it to our advantage. And they kind of game it. They kind of figure out, you know, what it does. You're seeing it with Clubhouse right now. And then- <laughs> That's what I just creators, was about to say. Yeah. And then the creators, either one of two things happens. The user experience starts to kind of tank because it becomes too markety. And people who want to use it in a more connective social way start to complain and, and start to leave. Or, you know, or some kind of critical mass happens where everybody's doing the thing. And so it doesn't really have the same impact. And what happens at that level is some thought leaders start creating info products and how to do the hacks that got them to where they are. That I call this tactic hacking. And when that tactic mm-hmm. hacking kind of reaches critical mass, uh, it becomes either less impactful because everybody's doing it. Or the, the creators decide to switch the algorithm change and bam, it, it doesn't work the way it used to work. And you, mm-hmm. you're just going to keep seeing this. It's been a pattern for a long time. And so going back to your original question, you need to move people into your email. Uh, you know, email marketing, yes, it's it's always going to be like, oh, email marketing is dead, blah, blah, blah. But like it, it absolutely works. It's the place where you know you could nurture people no matter what platform comes and goes. You own that list and you have the opportunity to provide continual value to people um, no matter what they do as far as platforms. They're always going to be checking their email. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the original question? Because I feel like I'm missing part how do we, of it. No, I think like this is great though also talking about because you know I had said how do you know when online is ready you had brought up you know clubhouse which is amazing and and it is it's a lot of tactics and even we're seeing on clubhouse right now if you're on there this kind of growth of them realizing what is working in rooms what isn't but the interesting thing about clubhouse is you create your own algorithm right now in a way it'll be interesting to see if they start create kicking in a more algorithm type thing but the key of clubhouse is supposed to be that you create your own algorithm 
and you control what you see. Um, but we had talked about like, how do we know when uh, our audience yeah. is ready for us to create a course? And, you know, does our list have to be, you know, because our audience includes our email list. So does the email list have to be at a certain number before you can be successful? This is, this is a difficult question because... Yes and no. Some people say, oh, you need to have at least a thousand people just because of the numbers, right? And so if you're if you're just using your own audience or you're just using your own list, you know, I just had this conversation with with uh, one of my JV partners uh, a couple weeks ago, Michael Elsner. He's a uh, he's an absolute genius when it comes to uh, like affiliate launching. And he, he, you know, he's he's got his Kajabi millionaire pin and he does like half million dollar launches you know all of his launches have been six figures like he knows his stuff so he said yeah there's there's a there's a point where your email uh, your email list is your atm and he's like i'm not saying that some kind of scammy way like just write an email and they'll give you money but it's like there there is a numbers game to it where it's just like if you have a great offer and you have a certain amount of people the percentage of people who are, will, will buy will give you a certain dollar amount it's just going to work out that way if you've been adding value and loving your community you know not if you're just like constantly selling 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 it's all about providing value to people so there's that that aspect of it i hate to say like your your list is your atm that just sounds terrible but there is a kind of truth component to that but the other thing is i had one of my most successful clients had 35 people on her email list and she did a five-figure launch the key to that though was she had a key affiliate partner. Basically, she had this great program and she said, basically, I would like to partner with you on my launch. Would you bring me into your world? My course is a perfect fit for yours where if you take what I teach and what you teach together, people will have outsized results and I know you don't teach what I teach. And so she did that, bam. Then the second time around we relaunched and I, th you know, I think that was like maybe a 14 to 16K launch. The, the second time around, I think it was like double that. And now, you know, in her first year, she's done 300,000. And this is a, actually a system that we've repeated with a bunch of people. It's like, don't just do the uh, you know affiliate billboard thing where it's like, hey, my friend's got a new course, check it out, da 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 there's a way of doing this where it's like you invite people into your world and you you just kind of like you do a video where you introduce them and they're teaching and a little bit about them and just let it be like a blog post or a blog video or something like that. And then a week later, you can actually bring them in, do some training together and add value to the audience and then make an offer. It doesn't have to be like this crazy formulaic webinar, you know, it can be very natural. And then you never have to sell from your inbox. You never have to burn out your list, you know? And so that's, that's kind of the process that I've actually been doing for some people, a completely different launch, which, um, Michael and I, we call the catapult launch. And we're actually beta testing a, a course right now that we, we basically developed this whole thing. But, um, yeah, it's, it's one thing that I think a lot of people aren't doing well. Number one, people don't know how to approach affiliates. Number two, like um, they're they're just treating their emails as like billboards. Mm -hmm. so, there's another way. Yeah, I like that. And if I, I think if people take what you just said and start to go look at some of the bigger names, we are already seeing them do that. And they do that like even within their events where they bring their friends and their friends have pieces that, 
they don't teach, but fits exactly with what the bigger offer is at the end. Um, we see, you know, Dean Graziosi do that. We've seen Brendan Bruchard do that. Uh, Pete Vargas has done it. It's, you know, it's a way. And if you start kind of watching some of the launches, I think people will realize how they're seeing that happen. Jenna Kutcher does it as well with her friends. Um, so it's, it's effective for sure because it brings in like audiences as well. This is why it's so important to like make friendships and real relationships <clears throat> online. I tell people mm -hmm. this all the time, like, don't be afraid to reach out to people as long as you're doing it in a way in which, as Russell Brunson says, like, dig the well before you're thirsty. In other words, like, don't approach people because you have an offer and you want to do this. Like, approach people to add value and create a relationship and build this thing long before you ever consider saying, hey, you know, can we do this thing together? Mm -hmm. The opportunities are out there. Yeah. For sure. And even to just kind of piggyback, like one of the ways that I'm seeing opportunities of building your of friendships and kind of creating a, a circle, we're seeing it on Clubhouse where there's these rooms that you can tell these people are connected and are friends. Brendan Bouchard had a room last night and guess what? It was Jenna. It was Trent Shelton. Um, Jamie Kernlina was in there. You know, they're all this, this group of people that have surrounded each other to support each other. And that is, I think, a piece of that's really important to going into launches is having your group of people that I'm not expecting them to buy from me. I'm just expecting them to support me when I'm like, this is going to crash and burn. Somebody save me or somebody tell me that because I opened the doors and some people didn't buy that it's still working and to just keep going through the motions that having your group of people surround you is so important as well. Yeah. I'm running a group like that actually. So like on Fridays I have my, um, speaking of people you only see online and like want to just hang out with, I, I, I started this group called the digital experts network. And it's like, you know, like my friend, Amanda, the, the, the YouTuber, um, I don't know if you know, Hannah Nieves, mm -hmm. she does like luxury branding and PR. She's in there. Um, Jacqueline Malone, the go-to gal podcaster. Um, Michael is in it. And um, these, there's uh, Zach Horvath, Amanda's brother, who does Live a Great Story, which if, if you've ever seen like one of those like circular Live a Great Story murals, they're all over the nation. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he does like community movements. And these two guys who have a, a marketing agency called Magic, and they're like, they're so good at email marketing. Uh, Active Campaign has hired them to help them figure out how to use certain areas of their, their own uh, tool. So um, we all have decided like, instead of doing our Friday meetings, let's occasionally do a clubhouse together and pick topics and like, just like bring people up and, and coach and talk and stuff like that. We haven't quite nailed exactly like the best way to continue to do it. We, we've only done it once so far. We're going to do it again this Friday, but um, I think it's a great idea and I think a lot, the, the challenge is a lot of us are still learning like, okay, how do we really, for lack of a better word, capitalize on this idea? You know, what's mm -hmm. the best case for this? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll give advice from what I've been seeing because I, like this last month got sick. And so I was doing a lot of, I've just been doing a lot of watching on Clubhouse and learning. And what I'm seeing is when you're in those groups to support each other, like, I will know that you are the course expert. So when a question comes up like that, I'm what I'm hearing these group, these big, these groups do that have these panel type things is I would say, hey, Glenn has a course for that. Glenn, why don't you just go ahead and tell them about it? 
And then they're like teeing each other up to pitch, but it's not, you know, being a spammy pitch at all. It's literally, hey, this is going to be of service and value for this person. Why don't you go ahead and answer their question and kind of tell them what you have to offer? And that I think is the key of Clubhouse because and and engaging and taking it outside of Clubhouse because Clubhouse creates these deep connections. But the way that I think that I'm seeing it happen is being in a group and having your circle of people where you're kind of known as experts together. And then you're helping each other pitch each other because, you know, you have been successful will then turn around and you will help me be successful. Just like, you know, we do when we're networking in person, I think it's carrying over to Clubhouse. Well, then I think we're doing it the right way. That's uh, pretty much how we ran it. It was, it was like, oh, you know, Hannah, you talk about PR. Why don't you take this question? So yeah, I think we're on the right track then. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, Clubhouse is kind of the new wave. And before we got on, I asked you, courses are the big boom. And I think that people are always like, what's coming next? And can I be on the cutting edge of what's next from after courses? What do you think is going to be the next wave? Do you think courses will always be around? Or will courses transition to like, what's next? I think a few things are going to happen. Um, some of the people who like desperately needed to create courses, you know, because they couldn't get back to their regular gigs are going to go back to their regular gigs if they haven't found a bunch of success there. And some people like my friend, Chris, you know, when she, she was a music producer, she was one of the 35 people on her list. She's realized that now that she teaches how to produce music and she's getting a lot of success from her course, she's doing less and less and less and less and less music production. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of people will, um, you know, we've, we've had to figure out how to network, right? So I think a lot of us are going to start getting back to like those traditional things like, uh, you know, those um, retreats. Um, we're probably going to want to actually do more in-person networking. And I think a lot of us had been forced to like get over the anxiety and fear of networking. And I think we're going to actually, you know, there, there's some people are like, yeah, I'm a great networking. I love networking. And there's this big part of the population that are like, I know I should, but I don't want to, that I've been forced to do it online. I think they're going to be cool with doing a lot of in-person networking events. And so I'm, I think there's going to be a lot of that and a lot more opportunities opening up for, you know, the workshops and speaking engagements and things. So I don't know that anything like super new will happen, but I think there will be a large amount of in-person event growth. Mm, yeah, I agree with you because everyone that I hear, everyone is craving, like, I just want to be together with people when it's safe. Or, we, you know, when, whatever the magic wand is going to be that we all finally decide that we're going to be okay to be together in bigger groups than a small thing. I think that it will come back to being events. And I think, and but I'm wondering, I don't think it'll go back to mass events. Like, I this is just my, like, kind of personal thinking and strategy. I don't know if it'll go back to big arena events because we can hold big arena events on the computer and we've seen that they can reach way more people. Um, I'm wondering if they will go back to being these more high ticket or like exclusive, smaller, maybe like a hundred, 200, where your connections can be deeper because people I think are craving that connection. And so that's what I'm wondering if that will happen because we're not going to be able to go back to big massive events right away. I'm wondering if something's going to be where it's these smaller things where we can 
connect deeper, but you still have more than just 15, 20 people there is kind of what I'm wondering is what I think is going to happen in the event world. I think there's some validity to that. I mean, you see it even in the way that online communities are, are, are kind of changing. I was talking to somebody on a podcast yesterday and she, I asked her about, she, she had an interesting podcast question. It's like, do you, is there anything you want to ask me on this podcast? And I was being interviewed. And so the last question I had to interview her and uh, I, I wanted to know about why she was doing a, a capped number of people in her network events versus um, somebody and she's local and somebody else local is doing like as many people want to be on this thing. And it's this huge thing. And she said, I noticed that when you're on the main um, networking event, there's like 50 and like up people on this and then you're expected to go do one-on-one. So now you got to follow up with a ton of people and it fills your calendar. She said, I realized that I can, I can kind of reach pockets of people. I can do like six people at a time and really deeply connect with them and do several of those and meet way more people and, and with way more depth. So I don't have to do all the double work and extra singled out you know, meetings. And so... I think we want not just to be part of something with a lot of people, but with more like intimate, connective groups of people. Mm. I mean, like Kajabi's town hall meetings. Um, I've really enjoyed those, met a lot of great people. But like at first it's like, you know, the big group of people and then they do these great breakout rooms. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so fun. You got like just a handful of people in there making connections. That's really what the value of those things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing on your wisdom of courses. I always like to ask people, my last question, if you could go back to even the little years of when your kids were little and you could give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, so I would be the age of my little, where my kids are? No, no, no. Like, like if, you could go, if you could go back to the Glen, like when your kids were little, like the baby years, you know, when you're deep in it and you're like, are we ever going to come back up and be people again? Which actually now I have another question while we're in this. Do dads ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you lost your identity of who you were in, in the mix of the baby years? I think... I didn't so much because of the kids, because I was still like a performing, gigging musician and writing music and doing creative things. But I think I lost it originally in my first marriage. And I I, I kind of decided, you know what, the next relationship, I'm going to make sure that we both have our passions and our interests and support each other rather than kind of get on each other about like, oh, you get to go do that now. It's because you have to have in your relationships, these kind of separate things that you bring together to help keep the well, if you will, from growing stagnant. Otherwise mm-hmm. it's kind of, um, there's just too much sameness and too much like, I don't know. I just, I don't ever want to feel like I'm limiting somebody from their passions and vice versa. And I don't want that resentment to set in. Um, and so I think if I had to do that, I would say, you know, don't give up on the things that you're really truly passionate about. And that, that can be, you know, friendships, and that that can be, you know, especially maintaining relationships with other people. Like I think I when I did have kids, I just stopped hanging out with people. And now like my relationships are really rich and I can't believe I ever let that happen. Mm-hmm. I can I can totally relate to that because especially as moms and when we have these littles and my babies were all born in the winter, it's like you shut yourself into this hole and you don't go anywhere. 
but um, it is, that is a hundred percent true. And even if things have changed, cause I know for women who leave the corporate world or men who, you know, when you leave the corporate world and you transition to being more at home, you, these relationships all change and it's finding who you are, but it's so important to then like, go find your niche of people who are in that time gonna be your support people, whether it be like a mops group or a, or, you know, some type of group that is in your same season to support you, I think is super important. Yeah, I, I think that that was one of the really important things about like reconnecting with all of my all of my guy friends. And I have a lot of female friends too. And, and just also just kind of, sometimes you need them to kind of keep yourself mentally balanced when you start feeling guilty about the balance or imbalance of work and family. I don't know if you ever feel this guilt, but um, there's that moment where I'll be working and my youngest will want something. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I really need to be in the flow zone and concentrate. And there's that moment where I kind of go, oh, you don't have time for your children. Like, like that guilty voice comes in. It's like, wait a minute. If you were working a nine to five in an office building, your child wouldn't be there. They wouldn't see you anyway. You have to lay off yourself. It's okay mm -hmm. to have this boundary and this restriction right now. It's not like I'm some kind of neglectful father. And so that's, that's a constant battle for me. That chatter happens and I have to keep reminding myself, no, 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 this is work time. It, it's not like you're working in the evening and you're like, oh, I don't have time for you. Right now, it's, you have to work. Yeah, and I have that exact same thing. And I talk about that a lot because I have so much, I, there's just guilt all the time. And it's guilt one way or the other. Then I feel guilty because I'm not working on my business enough. I'm not growing as fast as my peers. And I haven't hit the six figure launches like my friends. But then I have, when I do go work, I have this guilt of, did I not spend enough time? Like, what if something happens? Will I feel like I did enough or I was enough of a mom or that they hadn't, you know, had enough time that I think it's this thing of realizing that there's never a balance. But I think it's important for our kids to also see mom and dad have big dreams and they're chasing them. And that if I have a dream that I can go after that too is important. Yeah. You're, you're singing my song. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. If people want to reach out to you or where can they find you to connect? Um, I'm, you know, fairly active on Instagram. So that's the Glenn Allen show. Um, also, you know, the glennellenshow.com. I have a YouTube channel called the Glenn Allen show, which is why, why I go by that. And then, um, also a podcast called Unstuck and Unstoppable. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and I will talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me on. This has been great. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Living Your Calling podcast. If you love this episode, will you share it with a friend or leave a review? Make sure that you subscribe or follow so that you don't miss a single episode. I love hearing from listeners and connecting. You can find us over on Instagram at the Living Your Calling Podcast or at Michelle Ann Hagen. Join us inside of our private Facebook community called the Living Your Calling Podcast Community. It's free, so why don't you join us inside? You can join by clicking the link in our Instagram bios or checking out the show notes. Join us and we will dive in deeper and I can't wait to connect with you.
If you needed someone to remind you that you are worthy of your dreams, friend, this is it. I promise that you are worthy of whatever is on your heart and whatever calling you are wanting to chase. I am proud of you and I'm here for you. You're listening to the Living Your Calling podcast, inspiring you to be and create exactly what you were made for.